Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Okay, so I'm so glad to have Liz Bassler here with me from New York. Welcome to my podcast, Liz. Thank you for having me. And happy almost New Year, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a couple of hours left on this end. As a way of intro, Liz is a serial entrepreneur and prolific speaker at the forefront of fashion and technology. And she's credited with powering the evolution of fashion and tech into a business-to-business industry. Uh, Liz is also the founder of The Current, a trusted innovation partner for consumer retail and technology with offices in New York, Los Angeles, London, Venice and Tokyo. So Liz, uh, let's kick off with uh, your latest company, The Current. What is it for and how would you describe who it is actually for? It is a company that's focused about making innovation tangible and real, right? There's so much talk about innovating, disrupting, and very little understanding. Um, I think everything starts with the name. Uh, Everyone wants the future this, the future that. And my partner and I were very passionate about naming the company The Current because there is very little knowledge on what's possible today, uh, the real possibilities of today. I remember people saying mobile was the future like two years ago when mobile was already the present. Um, So what we focus today is identifying areas in the business that companies should be innovating and how they should bring that innovation upon and who they should do it with. We are big proponents of open innovation. You cannot do anything on yourself. We don't believe in internal processes alone anymore. We watch the space uh, longer than anyone has. And we have very, very specific views about how real innovation can be achieved. And we are very delighted to be working with the CEOs that actually get it. And in general, also, it's, is it driven by the fact that you're also cutting down on the R&D, and R&D costs, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. If you look at the way innovation is designed in most corporations, they are either driven by PR, right? They want the, the company to be associated with the value of being innovative or the notion of being innovative. It's not like a deep, deep, deep commitment. Or it is a deep commitment. They really want to achieve that, but they want to do it internally on their own. They want to develop things on their own. There is a a client of ours that before they became our client, they developed their own chatbot. Something simple like that, simple technology, right? And they spent a lot of money doing that. The moment that it was ready to launch, it was already obsolete. There was an announcement on the major platform that completely killed everything that they had developed. And we think that's very silly. Uh, When you are abiding by internal process, when you are inside the internal corporate world, you are not really in tune with every little thing that's happening out there in the tech world that could disrupt, that could really create this chain of events that would make everything uh, pivot and you have to react really fast. So your best friend is really a partner that is in the startup world, that is a quick reacting, highly resourceful, fast moving player that can take you to the finish line. What I see in corporate world is just a bunch of excuses, right, internally, why we did our best and it didn't work, why we finished but the consumer didn't like it. It's always excuses. And in the startup world, there is no room for excuses. You have excuses, you're out of business. It has to work. 
And if it's not working, you have to find a new way to make it work. Who can help you make it work? What knowledge gap do you have? And that is the mindset that coupled with um, a deep knowledge of the brand, which the corporates have, and a deep sense of purpose, which corporate players often have, it's magical to have that speed and ability to tap into different resources to achieve that, that vision of the timeline with uh, not losing, not deviating of what the core value is. It's incredible to any, any company. Was there initially a lot of challenges when you came up with this collaborative focus uh, on, on open innovation that people were skeptical initially? Or Yeah, listen, uh, open innovation is something people have been talking about for a while. But the reality is when we started The Current, which was a year and a half ago, there are only two main books about it. It's still something new. In practice, it's still something new. And what happened all the way up to that point was internal innovation, right? So it was a lot of um, incubator programs, a lot of accelerator programs. The explosion of the accelerators happened between 2011 and 2016. That was the accelerator age. And it was really good for the accelerator managers. <laughs> Many of the startups, they actually didn't get anywhere with accelerator programs. Uh, some did, most didn't. And most corporates didn't either. They very, very few, maybe I can count on less than one hand, the number of corporates that have actually achieved something that went to market because of an accelerator. That brought value to the company. The moment that it be, this conversation becomes KPI-driven, all the bullshit goes out of the window right? And you see that very little is left to show. So if you were to an internal uh, process, like the incubators are even worse. The incubators, uh, they are packaged as this way to foster new ideas. But the reality is, it's just a few good exercise. Uh, most of the time, it's an important element of evangelizing digital transformation, and getting a little bit of a culture change happen. But it's not a solution, really. It really isn't because all these things get caught up in the internal politics of the game. And uh, you have sometimes you have a situation, they have a great CIO that doesn't jive with the CTO. The CMO is not looped in. Everything stalls and nothing really goes to market. There's no real pilots that get anywhere that transform anything really is, is just conversation. So we've been watching the space. I've been watching the space for the past six years and it's been driving me crazy. And I had a company before my, my first venture into this world of retail was through my first startup, which was called Decoded Fashion. And Decoded Fashion, it launched in 2011, and it was the first event of any kind, of any size in the world that talked about retail innovation. It was almost like a TED for fashion, right? And that's what it was, uh, Decoded Fashion. We started in New York, and then we went to London. Then we went to Milan and Tokyo, and we exploded in 10 countries and became this 20,000 people community of innovators. And many, many, many startups that we see today was actually either launched at Decoder Fashion or ideated at Decoder Fashion. And it was a revolution. Many executives from the industry quit and joined startups, many, many, many. CIOs was a position that didn't exist before Decoder Fashion. Uh, CDOs didn't exist before Decoder Fashion. And it was beautiful to see both industries being transformed, technology being touched by fashion and retail and beauty and fashion, retail and beauty, finally understanding how to 
intersect with technology. But by 2016, I realized that we created, we sparked the creation of a lot of startups, but there was some, there was a lot of frustration because these startups, they needed deals, they needed clients, they needed pilots, they needed people to believe in them, not just investment, but who, they were B2B ideas and they needed companies to believe in them and try their solutions. They were payment systems, they were data approaches, they were new market, new ways to market your product, ways to save costs, and all these ideas that would make the, any company better. But no one wanted to try them, and, and it was this big install, this backup on the sales chain and value chain, and then you would see that... Uh, they would have a meeting with the CMO, but then the CTO and the green line, they, no one was closing deals. It was taking way too long. And some of the, my favorite startups that had great teams, they actually went out of business. And I realized that what startups need today, it's not someone to introduce them as much. And it's not really a conference anymore. It's really an agent. And almost like CAA, Right here in the U.S., we have CAA that represents the top artists. And in whether it's you're a model or you're a singer or you're an actor, you have this, and there's an ocean of actors and singers and models, but you go to a top agent to know the best or to know the one that you're looking within that spec that you have, right? Right now, there are millions of startups being born every year. And how can you sift through the haystack and find the one that you need, the thing that you need? So what's happening with corporates, they're just discounting it all and saying, well, whatever. Or they're going local. I met this girl or I met this guy and they, they sound cool. And then it doesn't work. And then everything, you know, they believe in innovation a little less. So this, that's what's all broken right now. So it's like, stop, 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 stop. Let's revisit how are we curating. If we believe in open innovation, who should we do that with? And then you parcel out your pain points and you look at one by one and then you seek out the proper partners to tackle that with. And sometimes even A-B test them, like do one again and the other for a small pilot and see which one, especially if something's going to be long-term, which one is your best one. And it's been revolutionary, really, to work this way for the past year and a half. We work with startups in over 20 countries, and the best one, it's the least obvious, right? We did a project for Gucci that brought upon over 40 companies that we revised, reviewed together. 12 leaders of Gucci sat down and reviewed the startups together. We selected a group of 13, the CEO, Marco, he was part of it, and five pilots were launched right away. It's something unheard of in Italy, in fashion, anywhere. And these startups were from very unusual places. you you didn't really have Silicon Valley like usually here. You, you had Nebraska, you had Boston, you had Estonia, uh, Hungary. That gets me really excited, like creating access to talent in places that are outside the cliche notion of tech. How is your business model around this? Yeah, so for the clients, we do either sometimes there's a hesitation in outsourcing some of your innovation team, right? But I think it's the only way. There is no real innovation team that's all internal. So we are convincing corporates all around the world that that is the new model. You're, when you hire your chief innovation officer, you need to empower him with, uh, with a team 
on the outside that knows, that has this knowledge of all the tech hubs around the world? How do you create curate all of this into something that is manageable and useful in his or her context within her company or his company? And then the hardest challenge is when you decide to do something, integrations, right? How can they support you? Can the CIO be the internal voice and the internal project manager? And then the partner, like in our case, us, we are the external project manager, right? Working, uh, we become part of the startup team to deliver this promise to the corporate. So either the clients are testing it with the project or retaining it with us. And what do you think is the main challenge for the luxury brands? Uh, where are things evolving? And also, for example, also in Italy. It's interesting because um, there is a, just a way that startups have we have this heat map that we, we never really share, but it kind of shows how their conversations have specific homes, right? Uh, when, you, when I think about clientele, I think about New York. I think about Canada. When I think about AR, there are like three countries I think about. You know, So it's more predictable than you might think the starting point. And then you, you need to let yourself be led to unpredictable places, right? To really be this... Uh, master of all. When you look at luxury, there are some assumptions and, and things are changing as we speak. So on the assumption side, hesitation, ground zero for hesitation is Japan and Italy. So uh, Japan is a fantastic luxury market. They have great brands. Of course, the economy is dependent on outside consumers, but uh, they have great luxury brands. They have great luxury products. And uh, they understand that market well. In Italy, for God's sake, it's so many brands. And France uh, as well. But the difference between Italy that makes Italy number one in, in my heart is that the families, the founders, the creators, the visionaries, they are the leaders still. they still in charge. Uh, many of these businesses are family businesses. You look at Zenga. If you look at Versace, if you look at Parada, you see this legacy and the, and the old trying to cope with the new and then this new generation, like in Zenia's case, this new generation creating what's the vision for the next step. And also in Prada's case, uh, what's going to be the next iteration of the vision of the family without leaving anything behind of what has been done up to now? How can we be a digital? How can we be innovative? But how can we still be us? In Paris, the conversation is about corporate. Everything is corporate, right? All the, all the brands or groups are owned by private or public companies. It's not really the same artistic feel that you have in Italy of the artists being first, of, the, of uh, George Armani saying, what's going to be the future of our money? We should drop this revenue stream, create this other one, double down on this. And he's still very much in charge of the vision for the brand. And you don't see that in France. What's happening then between, if you stay in France and Italy, you see that in France, a lot of the ideas get stuck in corporate mumbo-jumbo, okay? In corporate politics, in that game of being able to create um, an image of innovation, but not real innovation. And in Italy, it's a very exciting time right now. It's almost like the gold rush of innovation. <laughs> I love being in Italy right now. Because four years ago, I would talk about technology and it was about if technology. Right now is which technology. It changed completely. 
And everyone wants to talk about a future that is digital. All the brands are open to ideas and they are right now, as we speak, coming up with their strategies. It's a fantastic time to work with Italian brands. But this, let's say, ultimate you know, experience you want to drive within the luxury brands and so on, what other drivers? I'm thinking, you know, convenience and curation and inspiration and some way fulfillment as well and so on. How are these brands really using this tech aspect in order to create these relevant drivers for today and for tomorrow's generation? The most important thing is not be led by the trends, by the hoopla that sometimes the news cycles can cause, right? When we had a client, a couple of clients actually, that called us because they want a VR. And then we asked them, why do you want VR? They really didn't have like a solid answer for it. And essentially, it's cool, right? It's cool and everyone's doing it. Those are very bad answers, very, very bad answers to do anything. And what they actually needed was something completely different. So many times when the client wants VR, they actually want something that's interactive and it doesn't have to do with entertainment at all. VR is great for entertainment and right now and and not really good for retail. All this talk about virtual stores and all of that, it's not going to hit now. It's not going to hit three years from now and maybe not even five, to be frank with you. So if we focus on immediate future, which is our favorite track, immediate future, what it is that's happening in this world of tech that might be relevant to you. Or forget all the tech. You don't have to have any technology if you're the corporate, the client, when you talk to us. What it is that's important to you right now and what is that's changing in your corporation, what challenges are emerging, and allow us to give you some ideas about how tech can help you. So one of the challenges is um, for luxury is data, is gaining a deep understanding of their consumer in different markets. A second challenge is being able to retain traffic in the store, right? They they didn't lose traffic as some retailers did, like luxury uh, stores, because they they still an experience, but they don't want to lose that traffic. And whatever traffic that was lost, they don't want to lose any further. If anything, they want to actually counter trend and gain more traffic. So how can you do that? And you can totally do that. And how can you use innovation to then do that? And then if you can look at the product, what kind of products should you be creating right now? Should you be creating wearables? Well, not necessarily. It really depends. We know that wearables can be very, very useful if you create something very, if you prove the need, long-term need in the health space. But many other things, even the luxury space, has not really stuck. So tread with caution. And then if you look at supply chain, can you make things move faster? Right? How can you shave a day on the supply chain? And if sustainability is something that's important to you because your consumers care about it, how can you get closer to that? Because sustainability is as one specific cookie-cutter way to do it. It's a myth. There's a thousand ways to tackle it. It's a journey, and you need to start walking towards it. It takes a long time to get even close to it. I interviewed one of the heads of Patagonia uh, last year in in a conference in Frankfurt, and and I said on, on an introduction that Patagonia was not sustainable, and the audience gasped, thinking that when he came to the stage, he would fight with me on it. And the moment that Ryan grabbed the phone, he said, listen, by the way, Patagonia, it's not sustainable. It's an eco-friendly company, right? Well, sustainability, it's putting back as much as you took away, and they don't do that. And that awareness of that is, is fantastic because uh, sustainability 
is something that it's not that straightforward, but at the same time is much more accessible than we are making it to be. It's not just Stella McCartney. It's anyone could take a stab at it, really. Uh, you can be extremely innovative, even disruptive, like Adidas, and saying every piece of footwear we're going to create by a specific year, it's going to be made with plastic recycling, right? With threads, they are recycled from ocean plastic. Plastic that was collected from the ocean by Parley, which is their partner for this. Once again, open innovation, right? They put the whole future of the company on the hands of a startup partner. It was the most beautiful thing, Adidas and Parley. But um, you can do labor, you can do uh, just the way that you handle packaging. And so innovation can be just something like that. And if your consumer is the millennial American or the millennial European, it's time for you to look at this and look at this very seriously because it's not just you know, warm, fuzzy, good feeling kind of stuff. This is major business decisions now are being taking a sustainable approach. It's the future of your business. If you're after these consumers, it depends on it. If your consumer, most of your consumers is Asian, Asian specifically, mainland China, Japan. No, it has, they don't care about that yet. It hasn't happened yet. So it's really about what's best for your brand, what's best for your company, what problems are you facing, what consumer do you have, and then you tap into the world of innovation to create that map of growth for you. Exactly. And it's also, as you say, as a company, what do you stand for? It's not just tapping into what the potential future client will demand of you, but rather what do you stand for? And then act upon it. And if the open innovation platform is, is going to help these kind of companies to progress faster, then it's a fantastic combination. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's always uh, knowing why you're doing it. It sounds so basic. But I see it every day. Companies now really digging deep into the why we are doing this before they do it. Part of the why should include a deep understanding of the target audience in different sectors, right? In different markets, if it's a multi-market, a multinational, right? Company. And how consumers in different markets will react differently. We have clients that we do different innovation approaches for different markets. Like we create, when we do interactive retail, we do it in London, we do it in one way, and in Shanghai, we do it a different way. Different technology partners. And so far, what is your best uh, example that where you've remained very impressed by a company that is really doing sustainability, their business model, you know, 360 degree? This space is so, so, so new. It's not more than like two years old. You have brands like Stella McCartney uh, being a PR champion of this, but it's not a large business, right? Stella McCartney is not a large business. So it, you, when you think about large businesses, as I said, Adidas is really impressive to me because it's not just a parlay. They're thinking about that deeply. Uh, Nike has thought about this for a long, long time, and they have been also one of the early players on sustainability. You see the the sportswear companies really diving into it and coming up with new ways. Levi's, just to give them some credit, they've been looking at non-toxic dyes because denim is the worst, right? Denim and leather is like top of the list. They've been on this journey for a little while. So as I described, sustainability, it's almost unfair to say who's the leader of it. Caring would like me to say that, that they're the leader because they've been talking about it for a long time. 
But each brand has the area that they should be focusing on and mastering it because it makes sense to them for their consumer and for their bottom line. And that I what I'd love to see. Uh, if we can all get to that point, then we can start having conversations about who is 360. There's a lot of great brands doing little pieces of it. And uh, many, many, many incredible brands not even trying. Large, large, large brands not even trying. And I'm not talking about plastic straws. This conversation goes way deeper than this, right? And uh, CEOs need to believe it because what we're seeing in 2018 for the first time ever is that sustainable practices actually makes you profit. They can create growth. And that's something we're going to keep talking about in 2019. There's a huge project that we are doing with Google. It hasn't been announced yet. And it's going to be launched in a major stage, a world stage, that it's really about getting CEOs to play with uh, sustainability regardless of the kind of company they're working on, but they need to take a step towards that direction. Everyone should. Great. Uh, Liz, but if we go back to you, what would you say is your passion? You know, the thing that you're also willing to, you know, suffer for that has been with you for a while. I talked to my daughters about this, that I always knew what I was going to be since a, a little little girl. And the jobs that you have it's one thing, but what you do, what you're passionate about and who you are, it's, it could be a constant. And in my case, it has been a constant. I've been a storyteller. I've been um, this agent, right, of discovering stories and sharing stories and connecting people. I first did that in journalism, discovering stories, telling their stories, connecting people. And then I did that in technology, in the event space, and now I'm doing that in the consulting space. And I absolutely love it. And the byproduct of all of this, by doing this for all these years, is this incredible community that is a, a cross-section of technology, executives, innovative executives, artists, and thinkers. And I ended up launching a nonprofit last year. Uh, it was actually two years ago, but last year we rebranded. And we have this community that travels the world, and we... Yeah, we do a lot of fun stuff and we love being this networking event that you don't have to exchange business cards. You actually don't say who you are until the last day. And it's incredible. I love that. Well, another thing that it's another trend that's really important this year is this whole search for purpose. And everyone's feeling, doesn't matter your job or either you're feeling yourself or the people around you have seen that they are feeling and looking for. This has uh, field, the roaming movement, right? That people wanted to travel and work at the same time, not be chained to a desk anymore. This has fueled different work, flexible work hours, and then entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship. And it's been very, very fun to see this at a global level and how in our community we rejoice in being this tribe that comes from 24 countries. Yeah you realize that it's just a human trend. It's not an American trend. It's not an Italian trend. It's a human trend that we all want to be happy today in what we do, whether it's tech, whether it's corporate. We know that life is, is more than just work and we want to feel whole. We want to feel that what we're doing have a sense of purpose. It doesn't matter if you're like my husband you're in finance and he feels a sense of purpose and, and that's important for you to have in your heart. It makes you healthy. 
<laughs> exactly. And, and if you then work for a company or for an organization that has a very clear purpose, and you can be part of that. That's like doubling it up, right? That is true. That is true. Sometimes you need to define that yourself if your company doesn't have that culture. My husband's company doesn't. He created that himself, right, for his own world. It's extra enjoyable, as you said, when the, the company you work for has that purpose. On the first startup I had, I wasn't really that mindful of other people's mindfulness <laughs> I was in purpose. We made, even though we were a small company, we were 25 people by the time I left, I made mistakes that large corporates make. I, I really revalued working yourself to the bone, emails at three o'clock in the morning, working during holidays. I thought that was really cool. It shows how much an employee is committed to your vision, to how much they, they love the job. And I don't believe in any of that anymore. With the current, we, with the team, they really helped to shape a culture that whether we are, we are now 17, if we are to 1700, the culture has already been set and decided. And that's very beautiful to see. Our vacation schedule is very flexible. Work hours are very flexible. You actually can pick your time zone sometimes. I, I have teammates that say, oh, today I'm going to work on the LA time zone. It helps because we have like three different time zones in the office. So that's kind of cool. And it's about understanding the personal life, how it merges with the, with the work life and creating this happy medium and understanding that your work is part of your personal story. How can that bring you a sense of, of purpose? I'm completely deviating of the usual conversations you have about business as innovation, but I think this is innovative too, for you to look at the teams and, and create a sense of retention by understanding their trend as as consumers and humans, right? If we talk about humans, want, consumers wanting purpose, consumers wanting sustainability, well, those are your employees. What kind of corporate culture do you have that addresses those trends? And as a startup that is about knowing the trends better than most, uh, we had to live by it ourselves. And what would you say are your transformational points in your life that have influenced you the most so far? Motherhood was kind of a big deal. I was in a very, very selfish profession. I was a, a television producer in the top market in the world, the top show in the world. And there's nothing more important than your work. Even my husband came second and he knew it. I, I made it very known that my career was everything that mattered to me. When, when you are a TV producer, the story, it's crazy. It's a little... It's an abusive relationship because every story is an impossible feat. And every day you're done, everything you accomplish just dissipates. And next day is a whole new battle, like the previous battle never happened. It's not like you accumulate your honor and your points. You don't. <laughs> you show up every day to work with a blank slate. And, and it's so frustrating, but it's addictive. And I did like hurricanes. I did wars, presidents, and murders, right? And I was caught in that. Uh, I remember one night he cooked a dinner from Valentine's dinner. He made this beautiful Valentine's dinner. And I never showed up. I, there was a shooting someplace. It was the number one story of the day in the world. And I just went to it. It was the most important thing. So that is non-sustainable. Talking about sustainability. You see them 20 years of this, 30 years of this, your relationships, they give. Your friends give. And it's a price they realize later on that you're going to pay. I didn't see it until I became a mom and I realized that something else mattered. That gave me some perspective. And then another tsunami hit, which was digital. So in 2008, when Gabriella was born, the media companies were being threatened by social media. 
and it was just starting to, they didn't even realize they were being threatened by social media, but I could see it. And I tried to embrace technology as a strength and because I've been a techie since a little girl, taught myself how to code and, and when, when women did not code, at least not openly, uh, we were not encouraged to. And I, and I, would, I talked about technology, evangelizing, being innovative in our business. But if you worked in media in 2008 and you knew technology, you were part of the digital team, which meant you earned half as much money and you, your office was in a basement somewhere. So you were actually punished if you knew technology. And that was the most moronic thing I've ever seen in any industry. And some of these uh, CEOs uh, have fallen down and for different reasons. Some of it have been me, has been me too. Les Moves was a terrible CEO for CBS News. Glad to see that he's gone. And others, uh, they're still around. And, and it was really sad to see media erode the way it did. It didn't have to be that way. Even in the New York Times is a great example. They made a mistake of opening up and not charging. And then they realized it was a mistake and then they closed it again and they made it, they made people pay again. And it was just enough time to save them. And it did save them. And it's fantastic. So first was the being a mom. Second was seeing this revolution of technology and realizing that my own profession that I gave all my life up to that point was going to go down the drains. And I was standing on the Titanic and I had to make a decision. Do I go down with the ship? Oh, do I find a new home? And I heard about this place called Tech, <laughs> in which was a meritocracy. In that place, if you had a good idea, you could look like anything, you could, and you work really hard, you would pay off. And that's how it was coming across. I'm like, hmm, I want to go to that place. I want to try things out. It depends on, on me alone, on my, on my vision and my hard work. And I have that. So I, I wanted to give it a try and it wasn't as easy as it sounded, <laughs> for sure, especially in 2011, right? When you're a female entrepreneur, uh, Latina like me, you were a, a unicorn, not in a good way, <laughs> in a bad way. You were an unwanted unicorn. But really, can you feel that? Did oh, you sense every that? day. Every day. And, and, and I have uh, male friends that say, oh, come on, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, my answer to them is just two words, shut up. You cannot speak if you are not on my, on my shoes. I actually have no desire to listen to any opinion of male entrepreneurs about what female entrepreneurship is like. Your opinion means nothing to me. Sorry. It's only a woman knows what it's like to be a female entrepreneur. And in the U.S., things got better. It got way better. It was a delight to see. I know my daughter would not go through what I went through already, and that makes me really happy. But in other countries, it's still the same or worse because uh, they, they face more than I had to face. So I was, uh, when I was pregnant and I sold my company, it's because no one would give me funding and I didn't need that much funding. And my deck was really strong and my pitch was really strong. But they'll point to my belly and say, come on, give me a break. <laughs> Why are you even trying? <laughs> you should go home and, and focus on your kids. That's when you know you, <laughs> you, your business might make it because I didn't see it as I had another choice. You keep trying because you're so determined. And some days it feels like there's no hope, but you can't help but try, keep trying. And then something opens up and it happens, right? And magic happens. My husband, he says that a lot. Um, when I'm going through a tough period, like there's something I want to achieve that's really hard. 
and I wonder if it's going to work out. He says, remember, <laughs> just keep trying. What I know what is watching you is that you just keep trying that it, it works itself out. And then I noticed that with other entrepreneurs, when they don't have the funding, when things are really scary, if you have conviction and hard work and good integrity, things really turn out okay. Sometimes it's a person that comes your way that, that shows you the way. It's not just on you. It's open innovation. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is the, you know, the long-term solution for businesses that you really believe in, you know, regardless of sector, regardless of... I truly, deeply believe that even for startups, that your team should not be all internal. I say that because my teams, are, myself, they are not all internal. I think there's something fantastic to have people that work with you that don't give a damn about your corporate news, who quit, who's, who's pregnant, who's sick. They don't care. All they want to know is, okay, what is the project? When is it due? And I think that's really, really magical. It really helps get everything moving, regardless of size of your company. You know, when, when, when we have like a very difficult project, something that's very high stakes, but we do, we make sure to take a little sliver of it and place it with an outside partner just to challenge, create a new dynamic uh, in the team. And it really ups the quality of the delivery if you pick your partner as well, which is the most important part. And it's, it's an, an, an understandable of the inescapable, right? Um, there are certain things, as I said, that people talk about the future because they're just trying to buy time to avoid the present. The present, the present is inescapable. We, we are going to be highly digital uh, society. I don't think we're going to be ready player one until I die quite yet. but. Hopefully the world's not going to destroy itself like in the movie. Uh, it's a great book, but if you want a shortcut, you can watch the movie. The message is there. I do think we're going to be dependent a lot on, on digital, virtual worlds, that stuff. It's going to kick in. But if you look at, at what it is today, it's going to be always a constant battle between the future and a sense of nostalgia for the past. And a lot of things, they are future, they indeed the past, but in a different packaging, right? Social media, it actually comes from a longing of community, of tribes. And uh, when it gets lost in Facebook, then we find a new way. We're still searching for that. We still want it. And like you see, like CS, two CS ago, they re-released vinyls, vinyls and Polaroids. That comes from our um, two, two desires that we have as humans. One is a desire for quality. Vinyls are this most beautiful, pure sound, right? And the other one is the desire to capture moments in an analog way, to feel the moment in an analog way, to feel that emotional connection. So the analog is not going to go away. It's always going to be part of life. And when you think about the future, the digital consumer and all of that, think about this battling feelings that they have inside. And how can you cater to both? How can you be analog and digital? How can you be past and future? I think that's really cool. That's when the best ideas come from. And I think also just physically having people meeting and uh, discussing and interacting and so on has a huge value, you know, whether it's in a private space or a professional space. That's becoming a luxury already now, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the formats keep evolving, right? But the feeling's the same. Like right now, people are not super excited about very large conferences anymore they like small spaces they like small as i said tribes right they like small groups of people connecting deeply instead of very large crowds of people with no real connection 
that's why like I ended up creating that network. And I'm not the only one. There, there are many, many groups around the world that now have those, those smaller networks of people, like-minded people that want deep, meaningful connections. When you see something exploding in, in amount, in, in number, right, in quantity, when you see social media exploding, when you saw startups exploding, the next trend that hits is curation. It's always a counter of that explosion, right? So now for startups, I told you, it's about picking only the best, focusing on the best. For your personal life, it's curating. And I think that's what Instagram does. A lot of people gravitate, go into Instagram because it focuses on you curating a little more. The world becomes a little smaller than, than Facebook. We still want those connections. We still want to share our stories, but we just want to everything a little smaller. It got too big for a second and it lost the meaning. If you assume that you have all doors open and all resources available, what would you innovate or change? The most important thing, I'm going to think of my clients because that's who I think of most of the time. I think the most important thing is data. That's the number one. There's all this cool, jazzy stuff that we can do, but the hardest place to to get it done it's data i see a lot of corporates stuck there on getting their data organized their their data in a useful place they have all this data streams but not really a strategy on how to use it people talk about artificial intelligence but if you don't have data you have nothing you don't have intelligence so a lot of the things that we want to do for our clients they are getting stuck because they don't have a data plan (laughs) they don't have a plan for how to revamp it and usually the the reason is corporate politics there's some kind of something going on and that is so important such an important step to get that in place and the irony of it it's um, doesn't have to be the giants there's some incredible startups that are able to completely revamp the way a large company handles their data and they are the first starting point not the not the large enterprise software companies, as most think. So I would revamp that. And the second thing for me, second and last thing, is make the buying journey a little more seamless, like the purchase journey a little more seamless, right? So many times, whether you are in a luxury space, which just happened with me on the holidays, or just a, a, any retailer, you, you, you see those moments of friction, unnecessary friction that makes you really dislike being there. Uh, you see waiting too long to pay. You see hard time getting the right size. Like Those things are so duh, 2012, you know, problems. <laughs> Why are they still not solved? For me, those are one-on-one problems, and I wish we could solve them right away. They're not that hard to do. If there is one piece of advice that you would give to leaders, what would it be? I think it's um, thinking like a startup, right? I don't care how big you are, how much budget you have. And when you think about it, your next year, you have your budget, you have your PL, but then what are your challenges? What are you up against? Sometimes it's not even a competitor company, it's a trend, it's something shifting, it's a regulation. What is it that you're up against? Or what are the three main challenges? Uh, understanding of there's only so much time in a year. So the three main challenges you, you want to tackle, or what those three main challenges represent, and if they are consumer-facing challenges, who is that consumer? And then uh, defining that vision in collaboration with the leaders of the departments that would take to tackle those challenges. But then after you define that vision, 
as a leader, you empower them to source the solutions for it, to source ways to solve them. And then you start doing things in a more proactive way. As you get, as you know, this is part of your plan every year. You start seeing that if you know that we're going to have a huge year with Magic Leap next year, right? Magic Leap is going to launch. It's going to become more and more of a thing. So, you know, VR is going to become more and more of a thing. It's going to be even more interesting. It's going to be formal, a lot of formal around VR. Is this the one? Is this the one experience that will take the world by storm and change us as a society? I don't know, but everyone will be talking about it. Everyone's going to try, want to try it on. Is there something in this conversation that matters to your corporation? Don't wait for the news line to hit. The story is already here, right? So be strategic about it. And startups, they're better at predicting these kinds of, of things. And corporates that, who have all the funding and all the resources, they are reacting. And, and I don't understand that. I would like uh, corporates to be leaders to be more strategic and creative. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly, that's what leadership is about, right? To experiment and to be in places where nobody has ever been uh, and think about these things. Yeah. And if you would give advice to yourself, let's say 10, 15 years ago, what would it be? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you should not help the world put yourself down. There's someone willing to do that every day. <laughs> say why you're not good enough, why your idea is not good enough, or what you're trying to achieve is not going to work, why you don't have the necessary skills, you're underqualified, imposter syndrome, all that kind of stuff. If you really open that Pandora's box, it just doesn't freaking close. Uh, what you wake up every day, what you should wake up every day with, is this notion that you are all-powerful and anything can be done and, and you, you need to be your best agent, your best cheerleader, your best coach, your best investor. No one will be that for you. And that is whether you have a startup or not. And that conviction, it's what makes people glow, right? What makes people say, uh, be impressed uh, with you, with your, with your energy. It's what the Malcolm Gladwell talks about. He talks about the things they are intuitive, imperceptible. How uh, when he, Even the book Blink, right, which was one of his first books, the first 10 seconds, you make an opinion on someone. It's 10, 15, or 20 seconds, but it's less than a minute. You make an opinion about someone. And largely that comes from that conviction. Do you believe in yourself? And, and, you, and you have to. You must. Because when you do, then every, everybody else does too. Yeah, exactly. And it's so, as you say, it's a simple rule. And at the same time, it's so hard for very many people because I think the environment that we're also living in is showing you these uh, fantastic, perfect, successful people. And then that makes a lot of people shrink instead of being inspired. I can do it too. And then like in TV, I've met a lot of famous people. And in this world of tech, I was fortunate to be able to meet many successful, larger-than-life, super-famous tech people. And they're just people. <laughs> they people just like me. And some of them, they have even more insecurities than, than you and I have. And the reality is, is um, some of them that we choose to admire, they have good processes how to snap out of it, right? It happens to everyone. They have the same weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. But it's about having the discipline and the vision to coach yourself out of it and like i'm very good with my coaching or strategizing my my day I, I plan my day by the hour even breaks even my lunch breaks like i treat myself as an employee really <laughs> and i design all the hours of the day i design when i read the book when i go to sleep when i'm not going to take calls 
in a, there's a, a rhythm that I created for my life that it's so, so important uh, for you to understand. And sometimes when it's not working out, go back, redesigning, drafting it. People say, oh, I, I never work out, which happened to me. Like my, my plan's kind of falling uh, through a little lately because of my, my things at work changed a little. So I'm not working out the way that I, that I used to as much. I'm not meditating the way I used to. So I need to go back into my schedule that I created and redesign it instead of complaining about life or saying, oh, I work too hard. I can't work out. Well, hang on a second. Who's in charge of my life? It's me. So just the plan is bad. Just come up with a better plan. <laughs> so what are the main components of a good day for you? It's like meditation. Yeah, I, I am not one of those masters uh, that really nailed meditation like some of my friends have. So I'm I'm aspiring student to really get that there. But I do know that it can be as little as 10 minutes and it does make a difference. So yeah, a moment for yourself. I would even take it down a little bit. A moment for yourself, even if it's 10 minutes of... Not talking, not thinking about work, not thinking about anything. Just, just, just center. Just stop. Almost like you hit the pause button, and the whole world goes like, like in the movie, stops, pauses. At that, then after that, something that makes you feel good. So I love sweating. I love boxing, and I have a lot of energy. So boxing helps me become a little more mellow. Otherwise, I'm always too much energy at home, and would drive everybody crazy. <laughs> so, I like getting the energy out. So boxing is good, tennis, skiing, like that kind of stuff. And in the morning, I really like to focus on internal work. I like to focus on touching base with my teams around the world, uh, taking a look at client work. Uh, morning is your best brain. So I like to do deep work, hard work in the morning. Uh, at least for me, it works really well. And then pause for. You got to eat. You should not be skipping. Unless you're doing a fasting diet, you should not be skipping meals. Even if you eat a little bit, you got to eat. And then in the afternoon, I like to focus on more networking. So meetings, face-to-face meetings, things that require to go somewhere, workshops, those kinds of things I tend to go in the afternoon. If we sum up, what do you think is the most important thing for all companies to focus on right now, regardless of six sector? It's really it's the strategy around uh, innovation. As I said, I really think innovation, it's not something that I'm saying because I sell it. It's because everyone, it's the inescapable thing. Everyone should be thinking about how can we do what we do better and pick the three areas that you're going to do what you do, but better next year. And then at the every quarter, you pick three areas and you start planning around it. And you're going to have the planning and the integration working simultaneously as you keep doing it. And that's magical. And that's what every company should have. That's what CIO should be empowered to do. And most of the time, he or she is not empowered to do. Because they need buy-in from the different departments. And the CEO should give them that mandate and send a strong message to all departments to, that that's the vision of the, of, of the leadership. But usually it's not. It's just like the, the leadership announcing that they hire CIO. That's not vision. That's not buy-in. That's just a person over there in an office. Sometimes uh, meeting all the startups, but unable to get anybody else, any colleagues to to try them out. I see this every day. I see this in companies that you wouldn't believe uh, how famous they are. Like they are companies that you believe are the leaders of innovation, but they're not. On the inside, they are not. They are trying to convince the internal stakeholders to try things, try new things, and 
all they see is resistance because they're still f- feeling the lack of of the culture, of the innovation culture that should be coming from the upper ranks and spreading throughout to empower that team. And what do you think the world needs most at this time? A huge question, I know. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> Not Donald Trump. We need more optimism. Because people are innately good. That's what I believe in. Yeah, exactly. And that should be the base. And, and hopefully, in a way, the new age of journalism could help a little bit more with that, right? And not just do the black and white stories and kind of to lift up good news. I make a point to read good stories every day. I When I wake up, I like, I don't know, maybe it was because of my, it's not a healthy thing at all, but it was probably because of my last job. I like to read the news before I go on for my, with my day, which is bad. It should be the third thing you do, but I like it. And one thing that I do, I make sure to always read a positive story before. If I don't find it, I don't move on. And today, it's the last day of the year. I don't know when you're going to be uh, publishing it, but today, December 31st, I was reading. My daughter was next to me. And we found a story of this man who was a banker and then turned to social worker. He had a very simple life, wore very simple brands, very simple shoes. We've always um, called him very frugal. But he had $12 million, $11 million saved up. And he left it all to a group of charities. And it shocked the town because people did not know he was rich. He was someone who lived very poorly. I read the story through it. I'm telling you the story now because I want to honor his memory. And I read the story until the end to honor that act. So there's great, good stories every day. Find them, read them. Read them to celebrate them. And maybe you'll be creating them yourself. Sure. (laughs) That's great. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for sharing everything. And um, to find out more, where should people head? They can go to thecurrentglobal.com or you can drop me a line at liz at thecurrentglobal.com or find me on Instagram at Liz Current. I love Instagram. Okay. Okay, great. And uh, you'll also find links and the show notes on corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. Uh, so remember to uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast, and share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Share it with people you know would benefit from hearing this. Thanks for listening, and until next week, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you, Vesna.